So I think what I'm going to do is just press record and we can just talk. So there you go. We are recording. If you are listening, hello, welcome to Morning Shot and cut the uncensored podcast of the Morning Shot YouTube channel. And if you really do like our podcast on Substack, why not become a subscriber? A paying one, that is, not a free one. Because, you know, we need to feed people and pay our bills at Morning Shot. So if you want to, thank you. Hello, Byron. Hello. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen this, Shimon. You've seen the latest uh, news article coming out of uh, the business chamber. So you, you may recall there was a chick, Bissisiwi. She was the uh, chief executive of the business leader of South Africa. She was the chick who was on the ESCOM board where she told the, ES- yes. the ANC, don't blame us for all your problems. You, um, It was actually you that caused all these problems at ESCOM and don't look at the board and go, oh, it's you. And everybody was like, oh, she's anti-transformational. She's uh, she's this, this, and that. And ultimately, she ended up falling on her sword and resigning. Anyway, she's come out this morning, and she's uh, she's issued a statement that basically says that she feels South Africa is in, quote, unquote, deep trouble and at risk of a Arab-like spring revolt. Interesting. What do you think of that? Do you reckon she's got a point? I think we've had Arab like Arab Springs like every year. We just don't notice them because they're called service delivery protests. Like we've got over a thousand service delivery protests a year in this country. That's three a day. It doesn't get reported around because they you know burn down school. We we used to them now, for the most part. I think the July peaceful protests in KZN were sort of an element of that. And but to me, controversial. I think the South African public is far too docile. Very docile, in fact. There was a great video on Twitter about in Strubin's Valleys or in Rotoport somewhere, some hellhole in Gauteng. They haven't had water for 10, or electricity for 10 days. 10 days. What do they do? They held up signs at the Foy Stone. Yeah, but I think it's also interesting. I mean, this article actually further goes into it. Now, for those of you who are long-term uh, viewers of Morning Shot, you obviously know that we're deeply globalist bullcrap. Um, and one of the things that actually she specifically highlights is that, or the article highlights was the execs at the WEF. You know, that's a globalist show organization. And the WEF this year, when they had their bullshit conference on how to control populations, one of the things that they highlighted was they felt that social cohesion and the erosion of social cohesion going forward would become a long-term problem for any nation state. And a lot of people who are, you know, like us, you know, uh, hard right wing nut jobs, as we get described, you know, with that tinfoil hat. Um, we all obviously commented saying, you know, you might actually then want to think about the way that you, Mr. WEF, are doing certain things around the world and how that may have an impact on social cohesion purely because your plans and your policies are, should we say, anti that. You know, they, they, they're very, they're there to cause social disruption how can you ask for social cohesion when you are deliberately causing social disruption and the article further goes on to highlight Tabu and Becky and Tabu and Becky has even said that the concern he has was that the black middle class in South Africa was growing very nicely under his tenure but that's obviously started to shrink and because of the government because of the way the government has reacted and his concern now is what he describes as anti-government demonstrations. So, what do you make of that? From the black middle class itself? Mm. I think it would be about time. I mean, the only time the middle class went into the streets, I think it was for the Stop Zuma campaign back in 2015 or, or something like that. Uh, the middle class is very docile. Yeah, very docile. Compared to like where I come from, France, like as soon as like, oh, we're going to raise the pension age by six months, like everyone's on the streets, every yes. single person. Here we have load shedding for over a hundred days in a row and people don't do anything. Like I, I, I don't really understand it. In some ways, I think it's because people are busy building alternatives, which I fully agree with. And we're not really a protesting nation in terms of the middle class at least for the working class it's quite a protesting no. culture but for the but for the unemployed class they 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 are not a protesting type nation they are a 
property damaging type nation whereby it's like protests aren't really protests they're just an excuse to burn something down yeah for the most part but like uh, Black Lives Matter in, in America US yeah but I don't know what it's going to take for there to be an Arab Spring I think there are Arab Springs taking place all over this country every single day but we just don't arguably KZM was, a, was an Arab Spring very much so. That's sort of looting. But it wasn't directed really at government. It was directed at commercial enterprises, like malls and looting of businesses and things like that. They didn't go to the Premier's house and tear it down. That would have been great. Yet. But they didn't. Well, we are seeing opportunity. We are seeing, and I, I wonder if this also isn't in the back of, uh, as you know, this week we saw some clips going around where some people in the KZN had actually gone to the Premier's property and they were walking around the property in an Arab-type spring fashion, but, you know, with an African twist, which is basically they used it as a, as an opportunity to start see and to say, I will look at all this uh, luxury, and then they were kind of just left, and nobody was hung. I mean, a little bit of a shame, but wasted opportunities and all that. But, um, you know, it's, I know they kind of went around with any form of aggression. That, I mean, they were doing the spring-type behavior. They just weren't following it through with the... Uh, your country's favourite uh, pastime of the guillotines and getting rid of the aristocracy. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, they have not done that. I mean, we do see stories, excuse me, of like mayor's houses being burnt down, like in some small municipality somewhere in the Free State. But that doesn't really yield much anyway. I know Guiani is a very important one where they burned down like so many schools over, over several months. And that's also died down. And guess what? They still don't have water. At the end of the day, we need to just accept that a large portion of this country are quite happy to live in shit. I don't see anything else. I just see this sort of acceptance that this is life now. We don't have a job. We get our grants. And we just sit around and spend our grant money on alcohol or something. And yeah. that maybe that's just a, a, an acceptance that that is what life is in South Africa for some people. I don't know, though. I, mean, I really don't. The super base lady, and she is super base. You should actually try to see if you can get her on here when we interview her. But anyway, the super base lady, she um she actually highlights that underneath Tabu and Berkey, the foreign investments that was in the country accounted to 22.7% of GWP. Um, Sorry, G GDP, not GWP. And now it stands at 14%, which means obviously what we've had is we've had a reduction in investments in the country, which is equivalent to nearly 8.7% in GDP, which actually is massive. It's it's like the, the budget that we have to fund all of the hospitals, the police, and the railway systems combined. So put that, in, put, put that into your head and kind of like understand that that's, as people withdrawing all the finances basically for most government services just in foreign investment, that's a shitload of investment. And again, she highlights that you know not all of these actually have to do with the energy sector. Yes, the energy sector, ESCOM and Transnet are headaches. But she says in her in her words that the actual problem comes down to the mismanagement and the looting of state of state coffers. She actually says it's not. You can put these things down to the failing SEOs, which is what the president does, right? I mean, the president goes on TV and says, oh, the reason we've got economic stifling in terms of growth is because we we have these failing public enterprises, and if we fix the public enterprises, everything will be fine. But she's saying, no, no, that's not actually the case. The actual case is corruption, looting, and mismanagement. And then she also goes on to, to finally conclude that a good amount of it is due to government policy. Now, we know what those policies are. You and I, I mean, we've made yeah. videos on these. You know, BEE, expropriation without compensation, like prescribed access, wealth taxes. Gated deployment. Um, gated deployment, all this other bullshit. We've we've done it all. Like, so, so it's nothing that anybody's a regular viewer of Morning Shop will be very well aware. But um, yeah, it's very interesting to actually see this lady come out and say it, especially as she is the... Uh, the CEO of the Business Leadership of South Africa Forum. She was a former member of ESCOM, and uh, she's just calling it like she's calling it, mate. And, and what you do realize, and I think she's correct, the most important institution in South Africa is not the government or SARS or things like that. The most important institution is the MPA. 
and the man yeah. and the amount of just lack of will to action of that institution is just unbelievable because many people will accept corruption they will accept graft they will accept all the stuff because it's built into the political system of any country but they'll want to see repercussions for it or at least some attempt to have repercussions to nip it in the bud some way to negate it here it's praised right here it is completely entrenched into every single system and the mpa is not doing one iota of effort to curb it in any way whatsoever probably by design don't get me wrong it's probably by design but if there was people in the dock for graft and corruption the investment would actually do better the load shedding or the power cuts as we like to call it and transnet those are issues we get it but those can be overcome but the lack of punishment of graft and corruption it cannot be overcome if you if you want to invest 100 billion dollars in south africa right and it just keeps getting nicked not all of it but slowly but surely and you go to the police and you try to do something about it and nothing happens you end up like andre Dorito at escom i know what all the problems are but I, I can't be the person to actually arrest the people because that's what the police's job is or that's what the mpa's job is or the hawks or whatever the case might be so at the end of the day you're like well we can build all the infrastructure we want we can invest all we want but if people graft the system have corruption we lose money and there's no punishment for it we're not even going to start investing in that at all that makes perfect sense to me yeah so you know one of the things that actually we just talked about and i think we should actually kind of consider that now as well is that you may recall that last year at the ANC's bullshit conference where they all sat around and figured out how to screw every citizen in the state to more money, one of the things that they came up with was, or they resurrected, um, was the idea of the wealth tax. You know, taxing a person's net wealth based on um, a certain percentage. And that policy conference bullcrap was supposed to be there to to potentially fund the uh, the basic income grants, if you recall. Um, That's right. Which the ANC is so desperate to to push forward. I mean, uh, this idea of this this wealth tax to fund this basic income grant was the only way that they could figure out a way to actually fund the actual the grants itself because they're, they're out of cash. And, you know, as a lot of people actually said, well, if you want to fund a grant like that, maybe one of the essential solutions would be to increase VAT and allow VAT to do it. And they were like, well, no, because that will impact the, the poor because then the poor are going to have to basically pay VAT on their goods and services, which means that they will in effect be funding their own grant, which I suppose has some merits and you can kind of argue that case. Well, and obviously lots of astute people at the time said, you know, the tax base in South Africa, they ain't not, not really that bigger. And if you do that, it will encourage foreign investment to basically just fuck off and, and leave. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm I'm the only person I know who actually approves of making VAT like 25%. Because it's about time the poor pay their fair share in taxes. Um, between you and I, and everyone listening, of course. But you, you can see how, and, and we said this before, the ANZ are just not interested in governing. All they're worried about is the grift. All they're worried about is the graft. And they want that graft to continue for as long as possible. That's why... This notion of wealth taxes to fund grants, the notion of whatever else. Like SARS is now going after high net worth individuals who have complicated tax schemes. A complicated yeah, tax scheme, them. according to SARS, it's like you have a you have a bank account in a foreign country. Like that's apparently a complicated tax scheme. Or you One or of, you've got some shares somewhere and they're like, Oh, those shares are what? In in dollars. Oh, that's that's a complicated. How about you just go after the people who fucking raped the country for twenty years? Like it's not hard. You can't, can't do that. That's, that's the guy who's in charge of SARS, mate. Come on. You know, but, but the, the reason such, for... There are such simple solutions to all these things, but they create these complicated reasons for their own existence, these institutions like SARS. It's like, oh no, it's a very highly complicated tax scheme. Like, I know people who like, you know, have money overseas, whatever the case, it's really not complicated. <laughs> there's a trust here, there's a bank account there, and it pays dividends there, and it's all completely legal, it's all completely above board. There's nothing complicated about it. You, you spend three thousand dollars with a, a lawyer in the Cayman Islands, and you'll set it up all for you, like in a week. 
Yeah, it's perfectly legit. And it's perfectly legit as well. Obviously, the reason that I'm, I'm highlighting this is because, remember, this chick says that we've lost like virtually, what, 8.7% or whatever in terms of GDP due to foreign investment going, oh, fuck this shit, I'm out of here. And if you look at it, it's like a, the wealth test was a prime example of this, but it's like the wealth tax was a prime example of the ANC doing commie bastard bullshit. Mm. And that is, we, we need we need some money, we need to redistribute it. How the hell are we going to fund it? And we've got the finance minister going, I can't fund this. And the agency's like, oh, I've got a bullshit idea. Why don't we make, uh, you know, the 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 people that actually have money pay even more? Why don't we do a wealth tax? And then a big surprise came in just before the Sona this year where it was announced that actually we would be getting tax breaks for solar and we wouldn't be getting a wealth tax. And so I sent you that one ago. But um, I think that's a, that's a really important point to note because Again, as it highlights to a lot of people, like, look, the ANC talks bullshit, but when it actually comes down to it, like, somebody's going to have to fund this fucking shit. And even Sars is like, we can't do this. It's not feasible. We support a, like, a tax reduction on solar. Now, the reason, again, I'm highlighting this is actually because yesterday another article came out on the wealth tax idea which actually highlights that if the ANC even were to push forward with the wealth tax, it's actually unconstitutional. You actually can't do it. Oh, really? <laughs> and so this this actually becomes this becomes really, really funny because it would be illegal to do a wealth tax based on our constitution. And so you have to kind of you have to look at that and go, right, but let's rewind the clock of how we got onto this conversation. And that is because the country is made to look like an uninvestable shithole based on rhetoric. This is the ANC sitting there at his bullshit conference talking bullshit ideas and making the foreign individual go, mm, I don't know. Like that place doesn't seem too stable. Maybe the cost case will go up. You know, maybe they'll tax me. And so it forces the tox the cost base to, or the investment base to, to go somewhere else where they're not discussing this type of bullshit. Yeah, but and I want to re-highlight that word is bullshit because we've just seen they didn't implement it because they couldn't, and even if they did implement it, it'd be unconstitutional. But that hasn't stopped them talking about it, and it's that talking about it that encourages the foreign investment, the foreign investor to say like, "Nah, I'm not, I'm not really up for this fight." Well, I think I'll make that one one I one up you on that in that regard, Byron. I still think there is this notion in South Africa that we somehow sort of a special country somehow. Like people actually care about us. People don't give a shit about South Africa, right? We 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 not even the top ten gold producing countries. We don't even need it. Not anymore. Not no one needs it. Platinum. Yeah, platinum's important, but not enough to invade and impose democracy on us. By any means, I spoke to Colonel Chris Wyatt during the course of this week. He came to Joburg, and um, he's a, and and he says he meets people who are like, oh, do you know, do you think the U.S. will like you know save South African farmers or or something like that? He's like, mate, the U.S. doesn't know where the fuck you're on a map. Like they have no interest whatsoever. There is nothing here of value for the U.S. or for Europe or for anything. In fact, we're a bit of a charity case for those countries because they open trade agreements with us and they. Sort of they give try to us, help us. Yeah, they give us a lot more than what we give them. That's for sure. And if they cancel those things, our entire chicken industry dies, our entire motor industry dies, everything dies if those mm-hmm. things are cancelled through because of EWC or whatever the case might be. But they already those trade links are already set up as a sort of charity to South Africa. It's not the other way around. They don't. Default doesn't need us to create cars here. They do it because they got a nice rebate, and it's not in China. That's the only reason that Ford is here. And even then, it's like 0.2% of their total investment of the entire company. Like, no one cares. Mm. Literally, no one cares about South Africa at all. Thanks to bullshit rhetoric. Thanks to corruption not being nipped in the bud. Thanks to a variety of things. And that's why, and I also think that's why investment has dried up. Not because people are looking at South Africa and saying yes or no. They're not even considering it because there's nothing here. There really is nothing here. Look, there is there is a lot here. The country has a lot of potential. It still has all of these resources. It still has 
a very large land space. It still has a relatively educated population. But at the end of the day, even as an investor myself, I I want to go somewhere. Remember that investments are long-term things. Like you're not yeah. investing somebody to, to go, okay, I built something here. I'm going to get all my return back, all my money back in the next month. Like, no, you got a five-year strategy to make your money back and then to make a profit and then to make an obscene profit and blah, blah, blah. Like you might have a five to 10-year strategy. So you want to look at any policy framework and say, right, in five to 10 years, how stable will that environment be so that if I invest the money, it's relatively safe for the next five to 10 years until I get return on capital employed. The problem in South Africa is we don't even know what's going to happen next fucking month, mate. Like, let alone five years. I mean, five years from now, we're all like, ah, oh, 10 years from now. Like, you speak to some, some economists and they're like, 10 years from now, we'll be in like the top three countries in the world. Then you speak to the same set of economists tomorrow and they're like, nah, 10 years from now, we'll be worse than Zimbabwe. Like, it's so far removed that it's like trying to find the coherent economic outlook and a coherent economic view of what this place will look like is almost non-existent. And then when you live in a global arena where you can kind of look at somewhere like China where nothing fucking changes because it's all controlled by the, the CPC, then you have to, or is, you know, CCP, you have to kind of look at it and go, why would I want to invest in somewhere that's that's kind of like really fragile when I could just take the same money and invest it in, I don't know, Panama, where maybe they bomb their citizens, but nothing's going to change in it. And even it's it's stable, and so we can sit there and say, well, in terms of an investment income and an investment strategy, I can plan around that. You just you just can't plan in South Africa, man, and it makes it makes mm-hmm. that it makes the investment really tough. It, it really does. There's a lot of barriers to entry for investment in terms of the encoded deployment and the tax regimes and land claims and all the rest of it. My sister is a hot shot lawyer for a big firm in in Santon, uh, money law. Half of what she does is evictions from mining land. So she doesn't do property law, but it's part of mining law. So, and the miners, the mining companies have actually set up a fund. Like we've got a billion rand a year or whatever it is to fight evictions. And often it's like, go to the family, give them 500,000 rand and tell them to fuck. And, and that's how it works. They don't go to courts. They just have a settlement agreement bound by a court order. And there you go. Like that's the cost of business in South Africa. My sister is a mining lawyer, or like a very top mining lawyer. She deals with this bullshit for her, for her mining clients. That's not something that you would think of when you invest in South Africa, but it's a byproduct of the sort of country we live in. But you've got hotshot lawyers like going to the middle of the Northwest to some shack and saying, listen, you get off, we give you 500,000, sign this. Meanwhile, they sign with an X or whatever because they're illiterate. And there you go. Like this is a hotshot lawyer. That's what you, that's what the mining companies are spending money on, instead of investing in yep. building deeper shafts or or creating better wages or whatever else you know. Or doing or doing investments with some actual proper university around what would be a more efficient and cheaper way to do mining. Like yeah. you know, imagine actually spending our money on proper developments. Instead, we're spending all our money on repairing the damages caused because some. ANC Hofwitz went out there and protested against fees must fall and there's a statue of Rhodes there somewhere and so burned down half of the library and now it's like crap now we've got to spend 300 million repairing a library because of a fucking statue and they'll all go you know and it's like get real man like how do you how do you have economic growth when you have that when you're looking at it going okay I mean, another, and here's another good example, right? Let, let's say you set up a construction company in KZN where there's a construction mafia, yeah. and that mafia is rather rather vicious. And then you know that to, to get to and from work every day and build key infrastructure that's desperately needed in that profit in that province, you're going to have to contend with construction mafias, people stealing your stuff, people probably robbing your, your lorries on the way to the place, and you also know that in terms of, let's just say, a manager or the investor, your own life will be put at risk on a daily basis because of the threats of kidnapping. And then you get some little prick going, you know, the Gauteng News saying, oh, but we need to remove your ability to have self-defense firearm because some some rapper who nobody's ever heard of, but 
happens to have links to the presidents and the premier, and you know they happen to all be buddy buddy. He gets gunned down in an assassination with an illegal firearm, and all of a sudden the question is, why don't we remove everybody's self defense weapons? And then you sitting there going, like your daily reality is dodging bullets in the middle of KZN while you're trying to build a fucking bridge, and you've got some halfwit going, oh let's just take away your gun, like. Who wants to sit there dealing in a country like that where you just think to yourself, you know, it's like it's hard enough dealing with these wankers and now they're going to like make it even harder. Like, you know. Yeah. I mean, so so really like the sort of conclusion, the morning shot conclusion is we want China to take over. <laughs> no, come on, Barry, you know it's better. If the Chinese actually did care about us, they would take over this country. They would just you know just execute criminals on the go and make the family of the criminal pay for the bullets like they do in china uh they won't i mean there will be small time corruption but not as much as it is now and they don't give a shit about the either or only care about uh, efficiency like people actually die on the job due to working on the job rather than through dying from being assassinated by the construction mafia but the, but the point the point of the video isn't isn't so much that oh South Africa shit immigrate run away yeah like that's not what we're saying what well, what we're actually saying is like so th- this started off with us talking about this this lady at the business chambers and she's like you know we may have an Arab Spring because there isn't enough sustained investment in the country in order to drive economic growth and we've looked and we've just sat here and discussed like why is there no economic investment and we said well some of the rhetoric out of the ANC is stupid. Look at the wealth tax. It's not even constitutional, but it didn't stop them talking about it for three days. And that causes people to panic. And now look at the same things with the construction mafias where you like, and then you got some moron kind of talking about the potential for removing your self-defense firearm. Like that causes panic. Now to people like you and me, we live here. So we're used to this, right? Yes. Like we just, we just shrug our shoulders and we just like, ah, another day with the ANC talking shit. I mean, why would you take the ANC seriously? I mean, that would be dumb, right? I mean, who the hell takes these people seriously? These people talk the stupid shit out their backsides as a daily basis. But to a foreign investor, they don't know that. This isn't their country. They don't they don't deal with this stuff. And so they can only take the rhetoric on face value. And so that kind of messaging means that they just sit there going, well, I suppose I could figure this out and kind of like pay school fees, you know, have some losses in order to, to know more or less what's going on. Or I could just go to, I don't know, Ghana where I don't have to put up with this shit. And that's what they end up going to places like Ghana or Kenya. Like, So I think if the ANC really wanted to look at it and solve investment problems and economic growth in this country, my number one message to them would be, stop the fucking bullshit, man. Like, Just become normal and stop talking up all the, the commie bastard rhetoric because it, that people don't want to hear the commie bastard rhetoric. But Byron, you're asking a snake not to bite you. It's within the nature of the ANC to yeah. have commie bastard rhetoric. I mean, my conclusion from this video, and we're not concluding the video, but what I'm saying is my conclusion is not that South Africa is a terrible place, more that we are alone. The West isn't interested in us. The Great Reset isn't interested in us. China is certainly not interested in us. I have my sources confirming that for the longest time. Russia is slightly interested in the very... Not very meaningful way. With minerals. Very small they want minerals. That's it. They want, they want a bit of minerals. Maybe a bit of ammunition every now and again, but they're not going to enforce any sort of regime change here. You, you say you say that, huh? Ammunition. But, I mean, they, they would need Denel to actually function for that, and Denel couldn't, you know, create a paper box. Yeah, for to hold the, the bullets in. But, really, South Africa is sort of alone in the world, which is great. <laughs> which is great, because in the future, it belongs to the people within the country. Doesn't belong to like George Soros's color revolutions. Doesn't belong to being a colony of the Russian Federation or being a colony of China or having the WF trying the Great Reset bullshit here because no one cares. No one cares. I mean, the president said we're going to have a smart city in Hateng, and it, the only thing smart about it is like a telephone pole in it where it's supposed to be built. That is wonderful news. It's wonderful news that no one cares about South Africa. Because then everything that we can do to fix the country, for lack of a better term, is to do it internally, right? I'm not talking through elections or democracy. I'm talking about building, right? That's what the Afrikaners understand the most. They're not worried about Russian foreign policy or American foreign policy or investments in South Africa. They are creating their own investments through their own work. But those is it. 
Yeah. 100%. I mean, it, and it's funny because I was thinking about this today. So today is Friday the 17th, um, and we issued a video today about um, a racist comment that we but supposedly we're racist and we don't really know the uh, the actual state of the country because, you know, you and I, we just we sit in a bubble and we – you sit playing with your hair gel all day, and I just sit there playing with, you know, my my randellas without I just throw around the room. So hold on, fact checking. This is this is hair wax, please. Oh yeah, absolutely. Right, trust fund baby. Anyway, so apparently we know fuck all, and we did a video about this today. And it, you know, there was a couple, should we say, a couple black supremacists, black nationalists, that actually come into the comment section. And you know what? I was actually I was sitting there thinking about it, like. They always talk about this being like our land, our land. This is our country, and I and my comment to that is, fuck off. Like it ain't your fucking country. You can't own a country. Like the people that live in the country own the country. If you want, you own the country. It's not possible to own the country. You can own some land in the country by all means. You own your land. I own my land. Like fuck off. Don't don't come here with your black supremacist bull crap where you tell me ah it's mine it's mine it's not your fucking nothing i got born here my parents were born here my fucking grandparents were born here i got just as much right to this place as you do you little prick but you know they they all want to come with this 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 narrative and again that narrative causes problems because those people who don't sit down and actually do what we do where we sit and contemplate stuff and we're like mm, you know what actually let's think about it like this and we might do some, let's say, uh, some actual thinking about the actual states of the world. A lot of people don't want to make those kind of thinkings, and they don't want to sit there making those conclusions. And so they'll just look at the rhetoric, and that rhetoric will be internalized. So if you're like a white foreigner, and you go, you know, foreigner, you know, go back to Holland. Like, why do they always want to fucking send us to Holland? I'm not from fucking Holland. I don't want to go to Holland. Piss off. Well, someone said go back to New Zealand once. I'm like, excuse me. The assumption that I have any affiliation with that shithole island, that is more offensive than you telling me that I'm not South African. <laughs> I know, man. So, you know, but the, but the reality is you'll sit there and they'll kind of like, if you were that that individual, you just internalize this and you just be like, yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm from the Western Cape and I'm a Karen and they write, you know, this isn't my land. I should go back to the foreign countries and I should leave them to it. And you just start. But there are those people, there's, there's this guy on Twitter called Des something, I don't even know, and, he, and he's always talking about like African supremacy and whites don't belong here and all that. Of course he's white and lives in the Western Cape. And whenever he's challenged on that, he's like, no, 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 I live here by invitation of the local population, and while I'm here, I'm on my best behavior, and I honor, the, like, I don't know, people around him or something, I don't know. It's like every time you go to Qantas in Australia before a flight, we spoke about this last time, like you have to, um, like, I don't know, parade yourself and say, oh, we are on stolen land, but from the indigenous people of Australia, and we must give thanks to them. I'm like, listen, mate, the indigenous people didn't build a fucking airport, right? They didn't build a plane. Like this notion that it's like the noble savage myth, right? We're like, oh, okay, but... These are primitive people, but they were noble. It's not a fuck. Like, not, not a chance. No way in the world are primitive people noble. And by and, and by having this white guilt over this notion that these people were just living at peace in the wild, and no one lives at peace in the wild. It's brutal out there, right? It's modern technology that makes life bearable. Air conditioning, houses, cars, airplanes. Like, these things were not built by indigenous people. Not because they better or worse, but it's just not, they just didn't build it. Let's just be honest about that. Say the Sydney airport is on stolen land from the Aboriginals. Mate, I mean, <laughs> the Aboriginals had nothing to do with it. Like, very much similar. Okay, but who did, the, who did the Aboriginals steal the land from, mate? Because let's face it, like, all, all life evolved from one central point of the planet and then spread in order to be able to go forward and actually find places where they could, could thrive in order to deal with the topography the actual nation that they go to you know people went to europe because probably they were living in africa at the northern parts of africa where it's very dry and the terrain isn't really good to grow anything and they would have gone off on a trek to find some green green land they can bro grow some freaking mealies in like that's that's how people travel all over the planet 
You know, how did the Aborigines get to fucking Australia, mate? You know, probably some driftwood and they, they've managed to wash on shore. And there's all sorts of conspiracy theories on how they did it, if you want to call them that. Like, okay, but the point is migration has occurred right around human history. And all human life as we know it now, Homo sapiens, all kind of started off in one central location when the original Lucy, if you will, started talking on two feet and actually evolved. All land, in theory, is stolen. So who did the Aborigines steal it from? Right? Yeah, how far back do the Aborigines then have to go? I give thanks to the Anibas on this land whom I stole the land from because those Anibas were here before me. Now then what? Do the Anibas have to go? I give thanks to the ants that were here before me that were trampled beneath my feet when I moved over. Like, fuck off. That's not how it works. And most importantly, I mean, this is how humans moved around the world. It was always about taking over from someone else. Always. Until 1945. Yeah. Right? Like 70 years ago. But before that, it was the strong birth the weak or the strong birth the strong or whatever the case might be. But people had to be pioneers and go build shit out there where there are mosquitoes and malaria and snakes and rivers and swamps and who knows what else to build the foundation of the civilization that we live in today where we can comfortably stay in on a Friday night and order pizza and a guy brings it and we watch Netflix. People, millions of people died for that. Millions of people built stuff that made that happen. And now you turn around and say, oh no, but all those people were racists. It's like, no mate. And stay in land. Yeah, on today and that that's the best part. Like I've got a friend here on the huge farm in the Eastern Cape, huge. And I said, Have you ever had issues about like stolen land claims? He's like, mate, there was no water here until nineteen forty two when we put in windmills. So it was very no true. It's very true. But no one can own the land. It's the Karoo. There's nothing there. There's no water. There wasn't water. Sheep farming only became a thing in nineteen fifty one because of the wool price huh? on the Karoo. And it saved right. an entire Karoo for another generation. Before that, it's desert. Whose land, who's going to live in a desert? No one. No one. And that's the point. And and why did those people move away from said deserts in the first place? Well, they probably moved to an area that was greener where they could actually grow some shit because it was a desert, right? But now that I've terraformed the desert into a nice farmland, it's like, hey, wait, 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 that's mine? Can I have it back? Like, fuck off. You know where, where you actually see it is like a really good example. Let's use the example of Mexico. Do you remember last year we did a video about all the Mexicans telling the Americans to fuck off and go home and stop stop colonizing Mexico? Yes. We did that video. Workers. That's right. And everybody just naturally turns around and goes, you know, Mexican belongs to the Mexicans. Mexico, that's a, that's a Mexican country. Are you fucking retarded? Mexico used to belong to the Aztecs. The Aztecs were all absolutely slaughtered and wiped out by the Spanish. The Spanish are now what we call modern-day Mexicans. Hence why the Mexicans speak Spanish, you retard. Yeah. Right? But Mexico is literally a land of colonizers. And yet <laughs> they don't get the stick. Where, where's, where's, the, where's the thing in the national news with the, with the lone Aztec coming out going, give us back the land, bluff. Instead, like we all apparently all want to be friends with these guys. You get the exact same experience in Brazil. Remember one of the parties who are actually part of, you know, BRICS, Brazil? Like, have you, what's the national language of Brazil, mate? Spanish? Uh, Portuguese. Well, Portuguese and a bit of Spanish. And where did they all come from? Uh, Portuguese colonizers, right? But nobody's saying to them, give us back the land, give it back to the rainforest and the, you know, the, bloody snakes or something in there like what the fuck man but white people white people make me sick man they just sit there and they go oh well you came to africa and you took the every do you know yes okay white people came here yes the Afrikaners did some shit with apartheid none of that they should be proud of yes we we know all of that like we're not oblivious to history but one thing that we do have to say is that when the dutch came here and the English came here and they fought over the land and, you know, the black people were were pushed to their sections and we had all the shit that went on with you. You know the one thing you can't claim that they did? They did not Aztec this place like the Spanish did to Mexico. Yeah. 
They did not go out and basically find every butt person that they could think of, genocide the shit out of them and chuck them in a grave like the Spanish did in Mexico, which is why there is now today no native population of Aztecs. Who knew? It's the same as in Australia, right? like five Aborigines in the middle of nowhere, and everyone must give thanks to them. But no, mate, the Aborig- like, Aborigines died out. They were genocided and through illness. I mean, I love it. On, on Twitter, sometimes I get these comments about, oh, the genocide of apartheid. I'm like, mate, have you seen the growth rates of the black population during apartheid? It, it increased yep. by like 60%. There was net immigration, black immigration into South Africa during apartheid. This is a very weird Holocaust, my friends. Very weird. Really weird. Where the population grows, it becomes richer. <laughs> and there's not a defense of apartheid, so don't even start on the comments. But what I'm saying is, look at the facts on the ground. South Africa, for the most part, has been very peaceful. There's been peaceful coexistence for hundreds of years in this country. And nothing's going to change that. Despite the best efforts of the Nats, despite the best efforts of the ANC, despite the best efforts of the EFF, as the South African people, you get along really well, which is a good thing. I agree. And again, bringing this back to the actual the topic and the reason that we're discussing this is, is because of the rhetoric. The rhetoric is basically, ah, all Europeans must book off. This is early and small and small and. and that, again, kind of pushes away investment. It even pushes away the, the Anglos and even some of the Boers who live here. You know, they've lived here for the last 200 years because... They don't sit there and look at this from a political point of view. They don't sit there and look at it from an analytical point of view, where whereby they go, motherfucker, should I piss off? Like, you piss off. Like, uh, my ancestors were born yet just as much as yours were, you bloody... Most of these people that say this shit come from the north of Africa anyway. They're all bloody illegal immigrants down to the country through the Zimbabwean route. You know, and you're like... But somehow you're, you're meant to be like, oh, sorry, I must piss off back to Europe. Like, send us back to Holland. Don't want to fucking go to Holland. Got too many, Holland got too many, you know, too many foreign invasions from Africa. Like I yeah. tell you what, you take your people, we'll go. Like, yeah. Holland's a- but that ain't going to happen, is it? I've been to Holland, complete shit mate. I wouldn't go there again. It's a terrible place. It's full of, it's full of drug taking Brits, to be honest. And now apparently full of Afghanis and Syrians and all the rest of it, which are, it's fine. They can go. If people don't want to put well, the borders, it's up to them. But they're not my people. Despite they're people, not my people. Yeah. And we and we're told to go there all the time. It would be the equivalent to them saying to you, "Why don't you go back to uh, Madagascar?" Yeah, go back to Congo. Madagascar. That's where, that's where all the bunch of people are from, though. Congo, like that's a fact. When when Ian van Riebeck arrived in this country, it was largely empty. The bunch of migration south happened at roughly the same time, so they occupied the country from different parts. The Bantus came from Limpopo, and the Dutch came from Cape. So, and then they meet in the middle, for the most part. Yeah, but when you point that out, Ramon, that makes you racist. And then we, what we have to do in order to justify our position is we take a pan-African position is that actually all Africa is equal. And therefore, even though they came from the Bantu areas and they came down to South Africa, it's all Africa anyway. So, you know, like... Yeah, but that's what I, that's what I say about England, these are ancestors of the Normans and the Saxons and, and the Vikings. So it belongs to them. Why are they Indians there? Why are they Syrians there? They don't belong there. Let's go back. Oh, but it's, that, that form of coloniz- colonization is, is great. You know, don't you know, diversity is our strength. But you notice how they never say that in South Africa. Like, you know, we need more white people here because diversity is our strength. You notice how we never have that. I've never heard that logic here. But you go to Britain and you speak to any bullshit fucking politician there, and it's like, oh, diversity is our strength. But in South Africa, where's the ANC ever say that? We need more whiteies because diversity is our strength. We need more whiteies in this cabinet because them diversity, eh? Like, never happens. Uh, Cyril mentioned once that if he could, he would tie up every single white young person to a tree so they wouldn't leave. I don't know if that's like yeah so, so strange strangely he was also talking to a white mining conference whereby he was trying to encourage them to invest more in the country the very next day i'm pretty sure he went to another you know black leadership conference and whined about how there wasn't enough black transformation in the country and the whitey should be pushed out of business so that we can make way for the majority population because again this is the whole point of what we're discussing here is around the rhetoric the rhetoric of this place yeah. is like they need to sort that out 
You know, you, you could sit there and blame Lescon, you could blame load shedding and Transnet and whatever other bullshit. A lot of what goes on in terms of South Africa's misfortune is political. It's political speeches that are stupid. It's political speeches that discourage investment. And it's the inability for any investor to look at South Africa and determine what a long-term perspective of the country would be. And it's funny because I'm seeing this also in some of the arguments people give us for immigration. I left because I couldn't see a future. And that's because they couldn't see stability. They couldn't see, like, what would South Africa look like in the next five to ten years? And the answer is they don't know. We need the irony. No, we don't. Someone could die tomorrow, for all I know. Then what? I don't know. Happy days, because then the ANC is finished and, you know, we'll probably have, you know, our first uh, coalition government, our first minority coalition government. And happy days, I'm all for that. So, you know, Cyril, I'm sure you're going to have a lovely long laugh, mate. Like, just don't take us seriously. It's just a podcast, mate. But, you know, at at the end of the day, the, the, the purpose of this is that, uh, you know, if you look at it, you just have to think to yourself, like, how much better off could we be if we just dropped the bullshit rhetoric? Just focus on actual proper things and just drop the bullshit rhetoric. Like people would stop leaving, they'd start investing more. Like you don't even have to fix the infrastructure, mate. Like we'll fix that. Don't worry. Like we'll we'll fix it. And, and that's that, that's the that's the overt irony of South Africa. A lot of the stuff mm-hmm. is just simple stuff to fix, right? With the will, with the plan, with the bit of investment, everything can be fixed. But the biggest problem, if the ANC doesn't know the difference between a liberation movement, not that they were a good one, and being a government, right? A government is there at the behest of its citizens to further the interests of the country on behalf of the citizens. The ANC still sees itself as the people who liberated South Africa. And as liberators, it's a very different mindset from an administration to run the country. And if you change that mindset, though I don't think you can through any means possible, but if that is changed through a different coalition government or whatever the case might be, you're going to change the country immediately. Yeah, it won't take long. And, you know, lots of people also say things like, ah, I can't see a future in South Africa. That's right, really. And you look, you look at it, so then you go, one word, Mgeni. Chris Papa's been there for like a few months, mate. He thought the, 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 the whole yeah. municipality is in green. He's got a clean audit and he's got a surplus on funds. He's actually managing to build stuff for the first time ever. Like, who knew? Two months. He did it months, mate. Months. Twelve months. million rand debt gone. Right? Okay. It's new, easier to do. New bulldozers. He's cutting. And and what and what, is it, what does Chris Papas do? We're actually going to go visit him very soon. What does he do? He just sticks to the fundamentals, right? Like any business, any family, any institution, any politician... Just stick to the fundamentals. Clean up shit where there is shit. Be financially stable. And with financial stability, as there is a strategic stability, you can actually plan things in advance. But if you're putting up fires all the time, if you're nicking all the money all the time, every single fire is just going to be another waste of effort and talent and strategy to fighting bullshit. If you end the bullshit, everything just fixes itself. It's amazing. And yet, what does he get? Uh, what what is all the criticism against him? Is it that he didn't reduce the money? Is it that uh, you know he's got a green a, a surplus? Is it he that the the tractor he bought or the borders he bought was a you know a cheap Chinese one? Like you know, is it based on anything like that? No, mate. It's oh, he's a whitey and he's racist. Like again, strop the fucking bullshit, man. Like, do we really have to keep talking about this bullshit? But have you noticed? that Chris Papas is probably the most loved white politician in South Africa. Yes, I have. And have you also noticed that in his municipality, I think by the time they have the next election, he will go from a, I think at the moment he was at a minority coalition or minority party or whatever. That guy's going to sweep it, man. He's going to walk it. You know what? You know what? Hey, John, you need to fucking pay us for this, mate. But the DA get things done. Right? But only when they're in the majority. Only when they're on the majority. And then you look at places like Swanee, where it's like everything's just a constant compromise. 
everything is like a, this balance on the head of a freaking pin. Shit can't get done. Why can't shit get done? Because everything comes down to the political bullcrap, man. Like, ugh. This 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 place can be fixed, and it can be fixed very quickly. Talking of the immigration thing, I think it's the last topic we can cover. But um, you know, what I've noticed right of late, right? I mean, I've been speaking to a lot of people that uh, turn around and actually they they like I'm going to leave, and I've you know, as a financial guy and as a as a lawyer as well, like, I've looked into a lot of the things that they say. And you know what? I've actually come to a conclusion. I see a lot of people that are leaving have royally fucked up their life here. Okay. Where they over, they're over debt, they're, they've over-indebted to themselves, they've bought a house that's too expensive. It's a nice house. But it's big, big bills every month, right? Mm-hmm. They're living a certain lifestyle, and that lifestyle is becoming more expensive because they're kind of like really kind of living, let's say, extravagant lifestyles. And you see, a lot of them are able to do that because they're professionals, and so they earn a good salary. But like, it's like a single, a single income household. The wife stays at home, looks like the kid, and they, I just think that they get overcommitted. A couple of instances I've seen where you know, also they get divorced, and then obviously they land up, you know, blacklisted. They owe too much money in the the legal settlements, and so. I have noticed that a couple of these individuals then cite economic prospects abroad as being the one of the reasons for them to leave, and that is because the lifestyle that they currently live in this country is actually at a crescendo. It's it's, it's unaffordable. Over, it's unaffordable because they they have overextended themselves. It's not actually that they've they're saying wrong with the lifestyle in the country, but have you noticed? And I don't know if this is just me. As I say, I've, I spend a good bit of time with these people recently and talking to them and understanding what's going on. And they never say it's ours because my lifestyle became unaffordable. And what they then do is they think to themselves, traveling abroad and maybe taking on a new job abroad with a fresh new credit rating, blah, blah, blah. They almost see it as like a golden reset. You know, like yeah. push this button, go abroad and like reset it. You know, new, new country, new salary, new life. You think it's something in that? It's more about running away from personal problems and then they're just sort of blaming the country generally as the cause of those problems. Meanwhile, they're actually just running away from themselves and the decisions made here and they think they can reset that life elsewhere. It's not illogical to me. Like, it's logically consistent that it does make sense, but is your argument that they're not immigrating because South Africa is, in brackets, shit? They just over leverage here and can't afford the lifestyle that they used to. Yeah, and you know, I don't think, it, and that my actual argument there is, and I'm not making an argument, I'm making an observation. Maybe my observation is wrong, but as I say, I've spent a lot of time talking to people of recent that have done this and, you know, trying to understand what's what's gone wrong. And, and none of them actually say to me, oh, it's because I'm over leveraged, you know, my lifestyle here is very difficult to afford it. And the problem is, as you know, when you're an employee, salary is fixed because you earn a salary and, it's not like you're a business owner, you work longer hours, you take on a new contract, you make more money. Like you're an employee, salary's fixed. So once you get to a point of over leverage in salary, it's very difficult for you to kind of like increase your your salary and lines with expenses. So you, you either do the logical thing of cut down your lifestyle, which I know very few South Africans that want to do that, or you kind of like look to see how do I gain a substantial increment and then the the answer in some people's brains is well, let's go abroad. But nobody actually says, well, I'm going there because I'm over leveraged. They all go, oh, it's because of crime, it's because of the opportunities for my kids, it's because, you know, there's no future here, there's B, there's this, 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 you know, there's too many potholes, as if there's no potholes anywhere else. And they give you all those kind of like, should we say, sinister kind of statistics to justify a decision that ultimately is just purely economic. I think that's the story of migration everywhere, Byron. I mean, that's, that's the whole justification for mass immigration to Europe. But these are people looking for better opportunities mm. without, without regarding where they come from and why they need better opportunities, right? And why the brain drain from where they are is probably much worse from for that particular country, the origin country, than anywhere else. And 
I think there is a very good bit of research on this. Like if you take Nigerians out of Nigeria and you put them in America, they do get richer. Same with Indians, same with uh, Latinos, same with everyone. So I think it makes perfect sense to me. I think the lifestyle will be very different, especially if you're South African. People already underestimate the lifestyle here and how much very much than everywhere else and at a, at a much cheaper rate mm. than anywhere else. But, 100%. but to me, it's perfectly logical for people to blame the country and, and then also accrue blame on the things we talk about, carry deployment, BE, load shedding, for for negating, the, for increasing the cost of their particular lifestyle, right? If you have a business and load shedding is a huge issue and it hits you, your lifestyle is going to suffer, but you can blame load shedding for that rather than your faults as a human being. All of that I accept and all of that I understand. I suppose that the, the anomaly that I would highlight, especially in this country, is that whilst we've just said, like, okay, this probably the 99.9% of the reasons why people leave is because of economic opportunities. And they always turn around to you and they say things like, oh, but it's for my kids' future. It's like, it's not your fucking kids' future. Like, you don't actually know what that country is going to be like in 10 years. And you also don't know if your kid actually wants to live there. Your kid may be like, you know, I don't want to leave South Africa. Why the hell are you bring me here? Now I've got to deal with Jacinda Ardine. Like, who the fuck wants to listen to that chick talk? I mean, I'd rather shoot myself in the face. And, you know, but you don't know that. You don't know that that's what they're going to do. You also don't know if they adopt the local cultures. They go to Britain and now suddenly they want to be, a, you know, an alphabet person. And you're like, oh, where did I go wrong? Well, you kind of like went in Rome, do as the Romans. Oh, it's like, so you can't make that, that, assumption that you go in there for your kid's future when you have no idea what the future is potentially going to bring you are going there because of the the economic opportunities available to you and you're thinking that those economic opportunities may be passed on to your kids by virtue of the the wealth that you accrue in your life you know the idea of inheritance even though these countries cost of living is so high that the idea of actually having a form of asset that you can transfer to your child by the time you get to your death is probably quite it's not really going to happen because you're going to need a lot of that, you know, wealth accrual to pay for your own personal care and your own medical treatment and all the other shit. But the point there is that in terms of that rhetoric, that rhetoric seems to be inbuilt into people's psyche from birth. It's like there's two songs you learn like imagine you're at school and it's like right we're going to sing our first nursery rhyme like ba black sheep and then the very next one is I must immigrate for economic opportunities like it's like it's just ingrained in the head like and it's the, the whole life that's all they do they just they just raised on this this propaganda train of bullcrap and it's like then when you get to their teens or their twenties like you say to them, so what do you want to do, little Jimmy, when you grow up? You know, in, in the past when we were kids, right? It was like, what do you want to do? I want to be a fireman. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a vet. Now ask a modern, like, 15-year-old, what do you do, little Jill, when you grow up? I'm going to immigrate. Like, but you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. so... It's funny enough, oh, man. I actually read a, a great tweet about a guy who's a, a white nationalist who I follow on Twitter. And there's a reason for, the, the reason why I'm saying he's a white nationalist was because he wasn't always. But in his 20s, he took the blue pill. And he said, no, go travel the world, see other cultures, you know, imbibe the, the essence of other people. And he did that for 10 years. And then the more he did that, the more he realized how great it is to be a white American. <laughs> like how great it is to be an American. So now he's more patriotic and nationalistic about America because of the fact that he traveled so widely. It makes him prouder to be who he is. And I think in South Africa, geographically and culturally, we are very inward looking and we don't look outside. We we travel around the world, but not to the extent of, of other populations, of course, for, for various reasons. And I think if more people went overseas with the ambition to you know, imbibe other cultures, so to speak, I think they would realize how great South Africa is. I know that happens to me. If I leave the country for longer than two weeks, I'm like up to the gills with like Thai food or Portuguese food or wherever the fuck I am. And I'm like, all I want to do is just go back home, go to the airport, see 
that that big mama like stamping my passport i could just give her such a huge kiss because she like doesn't give a shit about me <laughs> at all like i love that neglect shown by the states uh, in south africa and it's always a pleasure to come home always no matter where i go and i've been around to a few countries it's just never the same and i travel to find out more about other cultures but the more i travel the more the happier i am that i'm south african and live here and I think that's the reason, you know, like, as you know, I lived out the country for 22 years. I came back, but my choice, I brought back all my money to invest here. I am one of the the investors in this country, the 14.2% that uh, Pussy Seaware tells me that uh, is foreign investment. I'm one of those. I'm no point, no, 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 1% of that, but I'm still in there. Okay. So at the end of the day, I'm one of those people and I'm I'm also... You know, I lived abroad, I traveled a lot, I lived in a lot of different countries and experienced things. And the more you go around those countries, the more you realize they're shit. And I, I love my country because, as I've said to you many times before, I love my country because it is shit. It is a shithole. And as a result, I don't have the the police knocking on my doorstep because we said say naughty on Twitter. You know, I don't I don't have the 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 actual A and E telling me you know, I'm sorry, your appendix may burst, but, you know, we don't have anybody here right now. Can you come back when it's burst, please? I can just go to the private, you know, the private hospital and just get this shit sorted out. Yeah, it cost me, okay, that sucks. But at least it's fucking fixed, right? It's like you're fixed, yeah. You know, it's... And you do find that a lot of people will travel to places where there are sort of homogenous, right? Like if you're to Japan, and I know you've been to Japan. I lived there for a year. People would love the idea of living in Japan. Because it's orderly, there's no immigration, there's very few other people other than Japanese people there. It's clean, it's neat, it's all the rest of it. Try to integrate there. Oh, they don't want you, man. They don't want you. Japanese are, the Japanese are deeply suspicious of, of foreigners. In fact, the actual national, the national policy is basically the maximum amount of time they will allow foreigners to stay in Japan is like a year. Then you must fuck off. Like you've had your fill, go home. And they like, and if you ask them, well, why do you do that? They go, well, you know... It's like the Japanese have this thing where it's like if you can't speak Japanese, you know, it's like you can try. You can be like, uh, I, I don't really understand. And, you know, rather than break it down to you going like, go go left, left, then the right. Like their, their cultural thing is that that's rude to be like, it's condescending. So they just walk away. They don't even kind of sit there and like be like, oh, okay, I'll speak to you. They just leave because you can't speak the language. And no matter how good you think you can speak the language, it's not enough. It's not enough. So as a result, they tend to just shun foreigners full stop. Like you could jump on a train in Tokyo. You can go like towards Shinjuki, one of the busiest stops. And everybody would look at you like with these wide eyes, like check the tall guy, the foreigner, like, oh, we don't see many of those. But I'll tell you one thing they don't do, talk to you. They don't engage you. The Japanese do not engage foreigners. And if you speak to them, the answer is always the same. Japan is for Japanese. Use not Japanese. Go homo. So I don't know what the conclusion of this particular podcast is. I spoke about the Arab Spring, uh, why it probably won't happen, and why is yeah the issue of immigrants. So I think we've covered both bases there, Byron. And you know what? Yeah. You should be proud of the shithole you live in. I love the shithole I live in. I've got a lovely, I've got a lovely ranch, completely off grid. Got my horses and my sheep, and you know, I go to my work, I go to my restaurants, I serve the locals, I do my shits like. You know who's going to tell me about it? You, or they're going to try to sabotage me? Fucking no one. Because they couldn't if they tried. They're no one pitch for work, so it's not like they're going to come around and give you a hard time. Contrast that to Jeremy Clarkson. Or, you know, with with, with his with his on the on his farm thing, Clarkson's farm, where he upset the local he upset the local councillor because he dared to say something bad about Meghan Markle or something. What did they do? They just denied him the right to be able to sell food on his premises. Why? Because they felt like it. They just didn't like Jeremy Clark. Because they want to see the stars in the dark. That is a legitimate mm. reason why they didn't allow him. So, and, and I watched Clarkson's Farm Season 2. I think it's the best series on TV right now, and everyone should, should, should watch it. But I was just gobsmacked that this guy has a private property. He wants to build a restaurant on his private property. 
it's not going to be a huge warehouse. It's a normal little restaurant with a one little thing, yeah. And the council said no because they're just a bunch of dicks. Imagine going how... through all of that every single day. You want to make a decision and and diversify your income for your farm. That doesn't happen here, my friends. Once you own private property here, your rights are your property rights in South Africa are actually so much stronger than they are anywhere in Europe. Do you know? Do you know what I was horrified on? Is he got fined? Because he dug a hole and he moved the the sand like to one side and then he dug another hole because he was doing something over there and he used the sand from one hole to clog the next hole and they were like, and this is land he owns, it's his property and because he moved land, some soil from one hole to another hole over here, they fined him for it because he didn't have a permit to transfer the soil on his own land how fucked up is that man like oh i'm sorry i'm going to i'm going to dig a i'm going to dig a hole here and i'm going to plant some pop some pop plants can i get a permit for that please like that's fucked up man like it is. i couldn't believe it especially when it's on his own private property uh, on his own, own, own property yeah when you went off grid baron for your ranch did you ask for permission anyway did you have to write to the city council? Did you have to notify anyone? Not a fuck. <laughs> no, I turned, I turned off ESCOM. I went, and then that was it. I just said, fuck off. And ESCOM was like, cool, cool beans, no problems, because we weren't going to give you electricity anyway. You don't have any. So no one cared. But yeah, yeah I mean, I mean, just, just, just let your mind wander for a second. It's the same land. It went from the left to a hole on the right, it's the same land, but he got fined for it for not having a permit to move soil into another hole on the same land. There's not like his contamination, he's pulled it from over broad or the farm down the road. It's the same piece of land, and he got fined because he didn't have a permit to dig a hole. A permit to dig a hole. Yeah. So in conclusion, Byron's getting late. So sorry. But in conclusion, if you're in love in the white utopia that is Britain, get ready for a lot of fucking paperwork to do the most basic shit. Whereas in South Africa, the African utopia, I might add, you can do whatever the fuck you want. And that's why it is the best place in the world to live. Thanks very much, everybody, and thanks for watching. And if you if you haven't already, please consider becoming a full subscriber of Substack. Your donations do help us with the work that we do, and you do obviously get to watch the, the actual video as opposed to listening to the audio. And if you haven't already, please like, share, subscribe on the YouTube page. Do share our page far and wide. And if you are a potential business owner and you'd like to uh, advertise on Morningshot, please do get in touch at info at morningshot.ca.za. That's info at morningshot.ca.za. And until next time, ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you next Friday. Thanks very much. Cheers.